morning. This is Shisi, and this is Read All About It. This week, as we do every week, we have two new books to talk about and one classic book. Yeah, that's right. I'm Nuri Vitachi, and I'll be uh, talking about a novel that I've read recently, and Shishi will be sharing one, and then we'll talk together about one of the classics that perhaps uh, it's worth reading again. Yes, that's right. So I guess this week I should begin since I've been away for a couple of weeks. Yes, right. We missed you. We missed you. What have you been reading while you while you've been away? Oh well, I can tell you this was the novel that I read that has really been the exciting one for me of the year. I think it's a guide to Berlin by Gail Jones, who's an Australian novelist, and it's really just come out the book. Um, and it's a very interesting book because, in a way, it's a book about um, present reality versus memory for these six people. And it also draws on the work of Nabokov, um, including his short story of the same name. You know, Nabokov did write a short story called A Guide to Berlin. Um, but more importantly, it, it really addresses um, his autobiography, which is Speak Memory. Um, Gail Jones wrote this as a kind of companion novel to her previous one, which was called Five Bells, set in Sydney. And that's about the intersection of the lives of five strangers of the day in Sydney. And this one, it's about six strangers in Berlin. Okay, um, And the key themes in the book is about identity um, and also ideals. Um, and in this case, part of the ideals that they all share is a love for Nabokov and literature. So um, let me tell you a little bit about the book first. Um, it opens on a death. We have a bit of a death theme this week, I think. So we don't know who or what for quite a while as the book unfolds. We don't really know who's died. But the story is marked by this very brief opening scene where we, we know that there's a group of people. And here's what we're told, that they saw each other's faces remade as rogues, pinched, white, shriveled in woods with guilt. So right away we know, okay, there's guilt. So now there's suddenly like bad guys or rogues or something. So we know that something bad simply has to happen. And also on the very first page of the novel, one of the groups speaks about this. And he's rather formal about the situation at hand. Um, and it's, his name is Marco. And Marco said that the death of any human was without metaphor or likeness. The death of any human was incomparable. It was not a writerly event. It was not contained within sentences. So a very unusual opening chapter in a way. On one level, the novel is about the writing of fiction, but it's not terribly self-conscious about that. I mean, it's not like metafictional in, in, in that way. But it, it's really like a very compelling story that keeps you turning the pages. It's a very unusual title, isn't it? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. A Guide to Berlin. It sounds like a Lonely Planet book yes, or something. Yes, that's right. But it's <laughs> it's sort of the antithesis of a guidebook because it's anything but a guidebook because it's it's all sort of – you do learn about Berlin in winter and it's all the places that this group of people kind of are drawn to. And it's it, just like um, Nabokov's Guide to Berlin – it doesn't really take in. In fact, it's it's just the opposite. You you don't know where all the major sites are and everything else. It's like it's what their own curious um, desires lead them to. So what's what's the actual story? What, what happens? Okay, so here's what it is. It's six foreigners in Berlin. So they're all not German. <laughs> um, they're strangers to each other. Well, two two groups sort of, or two couples kind of know each other, but um, everybody else are strangers, and they're drawn together by 
and this is quite odd, they, they have a sort of geekish love of Nabokov and his work. They do things like they quote lines from Nabokov. They know all about his life as he spent about five years in Berlin. Um, they can unpack his dense vocabulary. Because, you know, Nabokov used all kinds of English words that no English speaker knows. You know? mm. and, and, but they, they, they pride themselves on being able to say, oh, yes, and he used this word there, you know. And they, they come together to meet in Berlin. They're all kind of visitors there to disclose something about themselves. And they often delve into secrets or psychological issues of the past. And this is borrowing on Nabokov's speak memory. So each time they come and just meet, sort of like a social group, but um, one of them has to make a speak memory disclosure. And the other thing that they do is they meet in empty flats that are for sale. Because Marco, who is one of the group's founder, he's a real estate agent. So there's a kind of unreality about the situation. Um, so, so that's the setup for it. And um, we do have a main character. It's Cass. She's the Australian from Sydney. And um, she meets Marco from Rome at the home that Nabokov occupied when he lived in Berlin. So she had gone there like a tourist to take a look at it. And she meets him and he tells her about this group. So I'll tell you about the others in the group too, because they're quite interesting. The other one is Gino. He's um, also from Rome. And he and Marco know each other. We don't quite know how they know each other or why they know each other. But they seem to have a long acquaintance. But it, it's a little mysterious also. Um, and then there's a, a couple from Tokyo. Yukio and Mitsuko, and they're very much in love. They're a young couple. And Victor from New York, he's the oldest one of the group uh, because he's born in 1952, which makes me feel very old <laughs> as such. Yeah. And it's set in the present day. It's set like a couple of years ago. So Cass has arrived in Berlin for the first time, and she's trying to become, guess what, a writer. <laughs> it's winter. In fact, she arrives on New Year's Day. She's young, she's in her 20, and you know, she's kind of on the brink of the great adventure of her life. And Marco is in his 30s, and Cass finds him quite attractive. And after the first speak memory meeting she attends, he asks her to go on a date to the Pergamon Museum. And so in, in that sense, the novel is a guide that should take into different parts of the city to points of interest for these characters. Um, and given that they're all kind of like eggheads, they're all very intellectual, very thoughtful types. They're kind of quirky, but mostly quite introverted types. Um, their interests aren't necessarily the standard tourist guide sites, you know. But then on their first date, Marco has an epileptic fit, mm. and that cuts the date short. Oh, so that's kind of the drama right <laughs> away. You know... I, this is not exactly an action-packed novel, even though there is death in it, and that's, I suppose, the, the big action scene. Um, but there's kind of powerful energy because, you know, it's very much a novel of language. Um, in that sense, it sort of echoes Nabokov, who's very much about language. Um, because as each person tells the story of him or herself, you learn a little bit more about them. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, Victor is the first one to, to do his speak memory. And it turns out he's the child of Holocaust survivors from Poland. And he grew up in New Jersey in kind of a not very nice part of Jersey. And um, he always wanted to get out of it. And he didn't understand his parents. They were sort of a little strange to him. They were older parents. And he, he thought of them as a little bit nuts, you know. And he's often fairly young and he leaves, uh, he sort of escapes New Jersey and he's able to sort of learn more about the world. 
But as he gets older and he, he then understands what the Holocaust is and he comes across the work of Nabokov, he recognizes in Nabokov his own family's life because it's very European. It's, it's the sort of life that his parents had to leave behind to come to um, America. And, and he also tells his own story very beautifully. And it's sort of everybody listens to it and they're like, oh, my God, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're so struck by this, you know. So it's it's really kind of beautiful that way, and it's kind of like he's he's shared something very intimate about himself, and he says he's never really told anyone this story before. <laughs> I see. It's yeah. uh, it sounds uh, it sounds very very deep and complex. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, is it is it is it fast paced or slow no? The, well, interestingly, the pace doesn't seem very fast, but I found myself very drawn to what was happening. Because there are sort of these high points of drama that go on. Uh, with each person's story, there's something startling in the story that is told to you. And so you suddenly go, oh, my God, and you catch your breath, you know. So, for example, Mitsuko, she's the second one to tell her story the next meeting. And um, she's from kind of an ordinary family in Japan. She says her parents were quite loving her father as a potter. Um, and they're from Hagi, is a small port town. But she runs away and goes to Tokyo because she wants to go to the big city. And and in order to make a, a living, but she she was at university and she kind of runs away from the good life, the, the you know the proper life. Um, she rents herself out as a kind of a counselor. First of all, she becomes a a goth Lolita girl. So she she puts on all this like very black makeup and she dresses like you know a Lolita kind of character and she rents herself out to to draw out the hikikomori guys these are the young men who withdraw from their family and just close their door and refuse to come out and you know the parents are can only open the door and give them food and then they close it and then they put mm-hmm. the food back out and this is quite a phenomenon in modern day japan usually it's like kind of geek boys who mm-hmm. end up you know, so, yeah, 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 playing computer games and all that. So she tells a story of how she sits every night outside his door and tries to draw him out. And as as the group listens to her telling the story, then she says, "Oh, then he eventually comes out, and it turns out they fall in love, and they and then they're looking at Yukio, her partner, and they realize she's talking about him. <laughs> so this is kind of curious, the boyfriend." And so it goes. Don't tell us any more. Okay, that's it. I know. It's kind of, it's very, it's it's kind of like a suspenseful mystery story. And we know there's a death coming. We're discussing A Guide to Berlin, a new novel by Gail Jones, a a novelist from Australia. And uh, it sounds like a, sounds like a wonderful read. The book I've bought also has themes of love and death. Uh, although it's uh, it's a little more well known than than yours, um, it's the Fault in Our Stars by John Green. The Fault in Our Stars came out uh, uh, about three years ago and was an instant phenomenon. In fact, it was such a phenomenon that um, not only was it uh, top of the young adult chart, but if you put all the charts together and looked at the numbers, it was top of every chart. And in fact, if you combined all the other charts together, it was still number one. So it outsold 
all the books uh, that whole year. And it's amazing if you think about it, because young adult fiction is only a fairly recent category. Yes, it know? really is. And to go from 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 uh, from this new category to actually dominating the whole. In fact, um, uh, in terms of profit, it actually kept the the book industry alive. Wow. I think for that <laughs> for that year, it was also num- the music. The theme from the, uh, the the film of the book was number one in the charts. So uh, uh, certainly a big um, a big impression, a big impact. But the story is absolutely uh, wonderful. Um, it's the story story of a girl, Hazel Grace Lancaster, who's sixteen years old, and she has thyroid cancer, which has spread to her lungs. Now, it sounds like a very gloomy uh, main character for a book, but um, the the uh, book becomes wonderful really because of uh, Green's ability to make. Um, characters real and human and um, you know if you think okay a, a person dying of cancer in a story you think you horrible I know yeah but if you think if you actually meet someone who's actually struggling with a deadly disease and is smiling and joking and making you feel good you think wow what an amazing person and because he makes her so real you just feel like you've met a wonderful person and she's she's at home and her mum and dad are saying go to the support group and the local church is running a support group and she's saying I don't want to go to the, I want to stay at home please they say go to the support group so she goes to the support group very uh, reluctantly and she meets some friends there including a boy with cancer Augustus now um some people there's a horrible review or uh, mention of this book in the Young Post, the South China Morning Post, this week, where it described it as a soppy love story. Now, the, clearly, the, the, the author of that review has never read the book or seen the movie because it's, it's not in any way a soppy love story. It's, um, it's a very deep novel about these characters, this small group of young friends, they're all teenagers, and they are dealing with the fact that uh, God or the universe deals us a different hand each person and sometimes uh, the universe deals you really bad hands so what do you do does that mean you've lost perhaps it doesn't in fact it's your attitude to the hand that fate leads you that shapes your life it's a very very um it's probably the the the, the deepest um uh, uh consideration that that uh, people go through and yet it's a very adult uh, consideration um why would somebody put this into a book for young adults? Well, the, re- the, the, the real story is that um, John Green was a chaplain at a hospital. He was a student chaplain as, as a youngster. Uh, and so he was dealing with death and then trying to put it into the context of fate and the universe and what God has chosen for you. So um, he had this huge struggle. And one of his friends did actually die as a teenager of uh, thyroid cancer. So he had to deal with these big issues in his own head and um, so he put them into the book. And what he found at the Children's Cancer Hospital where he worked was that um, the, the children weren't objects of pity at all. They were funny, clever, complicated, sad, sometimes angry. But they were just, you know, rich, powerful human beings. And he wanted to try and capture that complexity in a book and did it so brilliantly that uh, the book from the day it was launched uh, just went to the top of the bestsellers chart and just lived there uh, permanently. Um, so, uh, so we've got this girl, Hazel Grace, who's uh, gone to this children's cancer group and met some friends, all of whom have some dreadful disease and all of whom are ailing and none of whom know how long they're going to live. 
And so it becomes a metaphor for all of us because none of us know the day we're going to go. Well, I mean, if we did, we'd, you know, be able to make a fortune by gambling on it or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'd, um, we'd, live, we'd live differently. But yet all of us sort of realize maybe, maybe I should be, be aware of this. Maybe I'm not living my life to the full. Mm-hmm. And in fact, awareness of death actually has that effect mm-hmm. of changing your attitude, makes you live life more fully, makes you kinder to people. It makes you throw away all the petty worries that you worry about and actually get rid of your problems. So, in fact, though uh, diseases like, like cancer seem like total nightmares, in fact, what they really do is reset <clears throat> your perspective. Um, so we've actually got a quite a complex story because it's not just about these uh, these these young friends uh, dealing with these dread diseases. There's actually a plot because the two main characters, uh, Hazel Grace and this boy Augustus, decide to swap favourite books to get to know each other. And Hazel's book is unusual because it doesn't have an ending. It just stops. So Augustus says, look, you know, we're counting our days, how many days we've got left, you know, in, in short numbers. Why do we find the author? So they go on a trek to find the author. Oh, I love find that out, idea, yeah, yeah. Why does the book just stop and what happens to these characters at the end? Um, so we've got this plot which takes them on, this, on the road uh, to find the answer. Uh, the other reason why it's so magical is that the um, nothing is as you expect. You know, um, you, see on, you see on the internet these TV tropes or movie tropes where things are just so predictable in yes. movie land <laughs> and in, in TV land, especially TV land. But in a well-written book, they're totally unpredictable. So, um, uh, so the journey to find the author, what the author says, uh, their reaction to it, everything is unexpected. So all the way through the book, you're thinking... Oh, I didn't see that coming. Oh, I didn't see that coming. And um, so that's just a sign of a, a, a masterful uh, um, writer. And um, it's also very full of very deep lines. Like um, you just have to keep thinking about it. Like one of the lines is, uh, you know, why does this happen to people? Why do bad things happen? And um, Hazel's father says, the universe wants to be noticed. So... Oh, you that know, is a great think, line. What, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. There are lots of lines where you read it and you think, that's interesting. And you think, but what does it mean? And you actually have to unpack it. So I think his background as a chaplain, where he's dealing with, uh, with deep spiritual issues uh, of death, is, uh, is, uh, is very valuable. And, uh, and that line comes from Hazel's father. And uh, this is one thing I really love about this book. Dads in movies and books are always evil idiots. Uh-huh. They're stupid. They're drunk. They're they're just they're just the f- comedy foils. You know, ninety percent of books. You know, in fact, I think I'm going to start a campaign for for dads in fiction. <laughs> right, good dads. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why are all dads in fiction really stupid? And um, in books for teenagers, um, dads are, are are always evil, um, often molesters, mm. uh, and mums are hopelessly oppressive people who oppress uh, the children. Um, it, that's interesting. Does this author use a lot of... Uh, I, there's sort of like stereotypes uh, that you're, you're talking about in terms of the kind of figures that fathers are. Um, how, how does he not do that? Yes. Well, it's interesting in that he may have started off like that. I don't know. But halfway through the book, the process of writing the book, he had a baby. 
he and his wife had a child. And they just so adored this child that he realised that... This is the author, John Green. He realised that, you know, it's not parents oppressing their child. In fact, parents just are silly about their child. They just adore them, whatever they do and say. And so the two parents in this book just adore the child and are good to the child and serve the child and gently try and prod her occasionally, but are just absolutely adoring. And you think, wow, these are like parents really are. They just... They, you know, they get a new child and they're just besotted, uh, and they're not just um, archetypes. So it's about a group of people, which is, a, a, in a way, like the book you started. Very similar about. in the sense, but this this group of strangers, ostensibly, or this at least, they're all uh, foreigners in Berlin. They're, they're brought together, and it's that interaction between them of sharing their own memories and stories that allows them. It humanizes each of them. It makes them kind of intimate strangers, mm. um, and. There in that is the core of what happens in, in the book. And, and when the death does occur, you know, it's it's a shocking moment. But it's also something that immediately changes the dynamics of the yeah. group. OK, we've been talking about The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, a young adult novel that's, uh, that's been a huge bestseller and a, and a critically acclaimed movie recently. Okay, so our classic this week is interestingly also premised around a group, but two groups of people, because we've decided we're going to talk about Lust Caution by Eileen Chang. So back to love and death. With back all to things. love and death again. We seem to not get away from it this week. So, um, you know, this is um, this was a book. It's actually a very short novel. It's almost like a novella or a long story. Um, and it took Eileen Chang a very long time to write and complete this book. And it's a story about spies and the war that's set in 1940 Shanghai during the Japanese occupation. A little background on it. It was quite interesting. She tried writing an English version first, which was called The Spiring. And that was only very recently published, just a few years ago, in Muse magazine here in Hong Kong. And it took her 20 years to revise and complete it in Chinese. Um, and when she finally did, it was published in 1977. I have to say the Chinese version is significantly better. Mm-hmm. Um, the English translation, though, didn't happen until 2007, and it's alongside a film version by Ang Lee, right, and that's right. that's how many people know it. Yeah, and it's um, it's I mean, it's it's what we might call a honeypot thriller. In that, it's uh, the main character is a is a very pretty girl who's tasked to to seduce a man who has to be assassinated for political reasons, so that he can be drawn away from his bodyguards and put into a position where he can be assassinated. And, and of course in any situation where you've got two characters who are uh, re- uh, forming a relationship you know you've got the um, you've got the trope really of will they really fall in love that's or, right yeah. and and it, it's quite interesting because of course she's a very naive young woman who's um she's an actress and so this is like the biggest role of her career she agrees to become this mai tai tai her real name is wang chachi um, and she poses as the wife of a fictional Hong Kong businessman. And she comes along and, she, you know, the, the man she's supposed to seduce is Mr. Yi, who's the head of intelligence for... A, a, it's based on a real incident. So he's supposed to be the head of intelligence for Wang Qingwei. And so she's part of this group of student conspirators plotting to assassinate him. But she's sent in to befriend Mrs. Yi um, and, and 
through that work her way into sort of seducing the husband. And it takes like two years for her to do this. So it's quite a long and involved thing. And it's, it's quite startling, mm. really, how it all happens. Yeah. In, in a way, it's a, it's a classic mainland story in that, uh, you know, the Japanese are the problem, of course. Of course, it's always story. the Japanese that are the problem in China, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that the, the, the Japanese are, have collaborators in China uh, during the, this is the 1940s. And um, so um, our, our heroine has to, um, has to uh, play a role in, uh, in, in killing uh, one of the main collaborators, but is he a good man or or not? I mean, that's just the tricky thing because if she falls in love with him, the implication is that he's 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 lovable. Well, the thing that's interesting about this novel, it's very tightly told. We're we're very much in Wang's head all the time, so in that respect, it, it bears some resemblance to like um, Gail Jones's novel too. Um, and she's struggling to understand her own feelings, quite the way this young Cass who comes to Berlin is l- trying to understand how she's feeling. Um, and, um, you know, Mrs. Yi also is a kind of an actor in this drama because she sort of, she doesn't completely condone this, but, you know, she's sort of running a little harem here for her husband, you know, but she's kind of the old, not-so-attractive first wife, but she never gets unseated from her position as first wife. So there's all this sort of strange political, you know, intrigue around this group of women who, who come together and, you know, they're their afternoon teas and things um, when all along, you know, this, this Wang Chachi is trying to seduce the husband. And, and you know, it's not entirely clear just how much in love she falls with him. But we do understand that she does seem to be drawn and, and is fe- has feelings for him, which is, of course, her downfall because one should never fall in love with the person you're sent to seduce, right? <laughs> yes. And, uh, well, I mean, in this series, we, we try to avoid spoilers. But let's just say that the, the, t- the tension is uh, whether she should fulfill her task mm-hmm. or whether... Um, he's a good man, and she should uh, she should actually warn him not to uh, uh, not to put himself in this dangerous position. And we're not going to tell you. We won't tell you. You what really she should decides. read it. So you, sh- you should read it. It's actually it's a, uh, uh, as you said, it's a very short book. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a it's, it's a nice it's a nice little weekend read if you're feeling like something unusual. Yeah, and but I I also think too it it was a, a real marker for um, Eileen Chang, who's of course a very well known Chinese author. She got a little bit dismissed in the literary scene because she was considered, oh, she just writes all this bourgeoisie sort of thing about, you know, little tea parties for women and things like that. But this was the book that really, you know, catapulted her to a, a sort of a literary, um, not exactly fame, but it gave her a position because it was a very political novel, really. It was mm. a major story in that sense. And it, of course, um, became quite a, a big film by Ang Lee. Although the film version is quite different in yeah. some ways, yeah. You know, in a way, it's a, it's, a, it's a shame. Because, well, she's important because there are so few Asian authors sort of on that on that world stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so Eileen Chang, I think, is considered a serious literary author. Oh, very much so. And and I mean, you know, I don't know where we would be as writers today without Eileen Chang. She is incredibly important, and wonderful writer, really. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're talking about lust. Caution, Lust, Comma, Caution. It's a novella published in 1979 by Eileen Chang, also known as Zhang A. Ling, uh, set during the Japanese uh, occupation in World War II. 
So on one level, this book is really quite interesting because it's all the idealism of these young patriots who think they're doing the right thing. But in a way, they're kind of deluded. And I find that interesting because, you know, it's, it's an interesting pairing with the new books we brought this week since um, in Gail Jones' book, we have these people who who become sort of intimate but realize when the, the disastrous thing happens that they really don't know each other all that well. They are quite strangers, after all. And in a sense, too, in, in Las Caution, these um, young patriots um, realize that, you know, they've gone down the path of self-destruction, but they really didn't know what they were doing, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And in The Fault in Our Stars, it seems to be about dread diseases, but it's really about um, making the most of the hand that fate has, uh, has dealt you. So it's a deep issue. And that's all we've got time for on Read All About It. Join us next time. Thank you.